My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Hey listeners, welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Thanks so much for joining us. This week on the show, we are settling in for a tremendous conversation with Jason Stern and Don Fleming of the Lou Reed Archive. A decade on from his passing in 2013, Lou Reed's work remains as vital and shocking as ever, thanks in no small part to the efforts of people like Jason and Don. Working with Lori Anderson, they've helped bring a number of projects into existence, including the New York Public Library's Caught Between the Twisted Stars exhibit, which runs through March 4th, and last year's revelatory demos collection, Words and Music, May 1965. It's kind of a poor man's copyright collection of recordings that Lou and John Cale made of uh, proto-Velvet's classics. It's really fantastic. Next month sees the release of a new book, The Art of the Straight Line, which assembles Reed's unpublished musings on Tai Chi, music, and meditation. Both Jason and Don are on their own fascinating music lifers. Jason worked directly with Laurie Anderson and Lou in his final years, including on projects like the Metal Machine Trio stuff and Lulu, which we get into. In addition to his own bands like the Velvet Monkeys and Gumball, Fleming has also worked with luminaries like Sonic Youth, Teenage Fan Club, Andrew W.K., Nancy Sinatra, and many more. His work as an archivist is equally impressive, and it's seen him working with the Alan Lomax, Hunter S. Thompson, and Ken Kesey estates. I was beyond thrilled to get together with these two, and to pregame, I spent a bunch of time listening to Lou Reed's uh, records, some of my favorites, with a specific focus on ecstasy. We get into that a little bit. Of course, I went back and checked out Anthony DeCurtis's fantastic Lou Reed biography. I highly recommend that one if you haven't already checked it out. It's an essential Lou Reed read. I also spent some time listening to Don and Jason's appearance on Ian Grant and Evan Laffer's Jokerman podcast. I suspect a lot of AD listeners are already familiar with Jokerman, our TalkHouse podcast network label mates. But if you aren't, you're going to want to press pause right now and go subscribe to their show wherever you listen to podcasts. They've dedicated previous seasons to discussing the work of Bob Dylan, but have turned their attention to the works of Lou Reed and John Cale and other Velvet Underground members as of late. I have a lot of favorite episodes, but I'll start by recommending their recent look at The Blue Mask with Craig Finn of The Hold Steady and their street hassle talk with our friend Tom Sharpling of The Best Show and Double Threat. The Jokerman rule, and I know that if you head over to Aquarium Drunkard's Patreon right now, you can get access to a bonus conversation that Evan, Ian, myself, and Mr. Aquarium Drunkard Justin Gage had about the work of one of Bob Dylan's favorite songwriters, Gordon Lightfoot, and the 80s far-out, new-age, mystical 
discography of Van Morrison. We had a great time talking a few months back, and that conversation, plus lots more audio and other bonuses, is all yours if you subscribe to Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. And beyond that, uh, pledging your support on Patreon is simply the best way that you can support Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions and our online music magazine and radio shows and continuing endeavors to shine a light on the music that we feel passionate about. In an age of often sensationalized, sort of clicky, fair, we try to create something that's different, a different feel, a different approach to music and art. So if you support what Aquarium Drunkard's doing, the Patreon page is the best way for you to let folks know that that is the case. So we thank all of our patrons, and without further ado, why don't we get into it? My conversation about Lou Reed's life, art, controversies, what he left behind, and what is still to come uh, with Jason and Don of the Lou Reed Archive. Thanks so much to them for taking time to speak with me. You're listening to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Well, thank you both for taking the time to join us here on the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions podcast. Um, I haven't been to the Cop Between uh, exhibit. The Twisted Stars. Yeah. Twisted Stars. Yeah, I have. I haven't been, unfortunately, but I have spent a lot of time looking at the contents and trying to get a sense of it. Um, it looks incredible. So, congrats to both of you for the hard work that you put into that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I guess it's shocking to consider, but Lou Reed passed away a decade ago this year. Um, how soon after his passing did the two of you get involved in this project in terms of the archive and, and working together? Um, well, it was pretty immediate in my case, uh, just because I worked for Lou, uh, for the last two years of his life. So, um, yeah, right after he had died, uh, you know, it quickly became a question of <clears throat> what do we do with, uh, you know, what do we do with this office full of stuff and a storage unit full of even more stuff? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, we had to, Lori kind of had the she had to ask herself like what what to do like are these just possessions or is this something that people should have access to and you know more importantly more pressingly what is all of this so uh yeah right away um 
you know, once she kind of had the idea of uh, there could be an archive here that is, um, you know, a value to the the general public, uh, it became um, more pressing to find someone who, who uh, we could work with to kind of, you know, traverse this uh, uh, journey. And uh, I don't know, Don, when did we first meet? Was that 2014? Yeah, I think it, it was less than a year after Lily passed away. And you guys finally said, like, yeah, we need to really dive into this and figure out what we have. And that's when I came on board. And, yeah, the, the Sister Ray office was still intact. It was the way Lou had been using it. And so there was everything in that office that needed to be um, boxed up, basically, at some point. But first, we went through everything that came out of the storage unit. But we worked there in the office. We just made a big work area with the table and so every time every box it was just a mystery it's like okay here's the next box let's open it up see what we got right we, um, it was me, me and jason and uh jim who also uh worked for lou and so we would just we had it down as a team and we spread everything out on the table we would take pictures we would do counts of things and enter it into our little spreadsheet and um, we were looking for things right from the start that, um, well, one of the things I wanted to look for was audio, was original audio, and figure out how much we had so that we could then get an estimate of what it was going to cost to get it digitized. So every time we found like a block of cassettes that said binaural sound, and they were like a, a tour, We'd, we'd count it and it'd be like 12 C90s. Okay. And so we kept, <laughs> you know, we were looking ahead to like certain things that I thought we would want to do before the collection went anywhere. Um, I had worked at the Alan Lomax archive for many years and similar experience there where we, everything went to the library of Congress, but we wanted to transfer all the audio before it went there, just because sometimes those things can take years. If you leave it to your, partnering you know place to put that together sometimes it's several years before they do it so we had things like that in mind from the start like let's let's figure out what we have but also make some plans for what we're going to do before it even goes anywhere got it and you found a lot of audio right what in terms of hours what are we talking Oh, hours is a tough figure to put on it. I mean, Don, do you know the figure <laughs> off the top of your was, head? I think it was around 600. Maybe. Okay, I had read 600 hours and I thought to myself, I don't even know if I know how to conceive of what that actually means. You know what I mean? In terms uh, that of would be 600 hour long cassettes. You right. Know? And most of the stuff was on cassette. Like they, Lou used cassette a lot. And a lot of what he was doing was not recording it to be a release. It was really for his own, um, you know, he was documenting the shows and he also did this with video. This was the other really fun thing we found was he would um, shoot videotape once machines were first available. He had like a beta and and so he was shooting all, you know, a tour on beta tape, but he wasn't doing it as like, we'll put this out. He was doing it to check the band and himself and then like say look and say like oh we need to like do this a different way it was meant to help them 
craft the show better. And he he liked that idea so much that they actually decided they were going to do it for other bands and turn it into a business. And they shot, there is footage of a couple other bands within this footage that like him doing this idea of like, you know, this is good for bands. You get to see what you look like on stage because nobody had that technology yet. It was <laughs> cutting edge technology. Do you remember any of the bands specifically? Oh, yeah, I, I have to look it up on the Finding Aid. I can't remember right now. It was um, bands that were opening for him or that were on shows, you know, that just I don't know that you'd even know them. They, some of them were like local acts that were the opener or something. But that's cool. That's cool. I just wanted to make sure we didn't have like, yeah, Lou had a bunch of Duran Duran videos or something. No, on his. This was 70s. This was in the 70s. OK, right, 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 right. Yeah. They would have been a little later. Um, well, something that's interesting, I, I, one, there, I mean, everything about Lou Reed is fascinating. He's uh, he's an endlessly interesting person to think about and to listen to and to talk about. So when I say one of the interesting things about Lou Reed, it's obviously one of the interesting things of many. But I've always found it very interesting that he was he was really into technology. Like that seemed to be like a huge interest of his was the latest gear and you'll see yeah photos of him with kind of weird guitars or you know i i think i've seen one of him with like a parker fly or something you know so he was very (laughs) that that rings a bell jason Uh (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) i think you know so so on one hand i'm curious like did you guys find a lot of stuff that sort of spoke to that side of him, the in, the sort of gearhead, uh, sort of that that guy in in terms of the archives? But then the other question, sort of a parallel question to that, is you mentioned that he used tape for a long time. Did he ever adapt to mini discs or or things like that, or completely digital recorders? You can take oh, that sure, in yeah. two chunks. Sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, because the archive spans, uh, you know, several decades. So uh, really, all the formats of the time are represented in some way, and that uh, unfortunately applies to certain short-lived formats that are really difficult to transfer. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, for example, uh, there were these. So, okay, I'm i'm 36 years old i was born in 1986 i there are plenty of formats sort of consumer formats that i was not even alive for or conscious for so uh you know there were these like half inch open reel uh cassettes uh videotapes that we had discovered that go back to uh, you know the mid 70s um you know a solid decade before i'm even on this earth and uh i had never even laid eyes on these things before and um these i think came from uh one of the first sort of sony camcorder uh cameras that were available to consumers um you know sort of handy cams and uh we got these transferred and you know we didn't have the gear to uh play these back ourselves because these are just this was kind of like a niche format that, that got replaced pretty quickly by beta and later you know, and uh, vhs so uh we get these transferred at a facility and it's all, all it, you know it just looks like it's glitched out it's like feedback um and the guy when i picked it up the guy was like yeah the there's not much salvageable on the video side but there's a bit of audio here so we are, we're playing back the videos and eventually we realize this is Lou, you know, when you tape, when you would point a camera at a TV and it would, you would create a visual feedback loop. Yeah. So it's, it's Lou doing that. And 
we find out that this is some of the material he was using on this um, 76 tour, the Rock and Roll Heart tour, uh, where if you look up photos, Lou has the stack, you know, several stacks of like five TVs high. So it's like 60 TVs total all set up on stage as the backdrop. And, um, you know, it's e- there's either a live camera showing them on the stage while the screens behind are feedbacking or, uh, you know, he, he's playing back this footage of him doing the feedback loops. And, yeah. you know, it like it's hard to figure out when you go in completely blind. You don't know what you're about to see. You're just transferring like a unmarked tape and figuring out what what do I make of this? This just looks like noise to me. But then, you know, once you put the clues together, you're realizing like, OK, feedback is like this motif that Lou goes back to not just in the visual realm, but obviously metal machine music is completely built off of feedback. Um, and right. you know, he, and that it's not like he invented it. He, he, you know, obviously took a page from John Cale's book who had spent a ton of time with Lamont young. So like, yeah, you know, this is just one of the many things that is in Lou's arsenal, this feedback, uh, motif and, you know, to sort of discover that in the video side of things was exciting for us because we're big Metal Machine fans anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, that that was just one example of like, here's a format I've never seen. Here's the guy who transferred it who has no idea what's going on. And then we have to like do the forensic uh, discovery to figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah, it was open real tape. It didn't even it wasn't even in a cartridge yet. It was one of the first portable machines you could have. So it was the most cutting edge thing you could buy at the time. And Lou was always doing that. And and within the archive, the collection, were all his guitars. And most of them are these custom built, really wild guitars that, you know, look wild, but also have all kinds of crazy electronics built into them. Like he was always pushing the boundary. And you see that very clearly in the archive and also in the paperwork. There's paperwork between him and some of the guitar makers talking about creating these guitars. And we were literally surrounded by like just the most hi-fi stereo system that he had there in the office. He was always, you know, demanded the best in sound, whatever at that point was the best way to do it. He wanted to do that. Um, Yeah. And over time, he's, you know, rebuilding his arsenal of gear. I mean, obviously, the guitars were ever shifting. He was always kind of meeting a new, you know, guitar builder or trying out a different company and, you know, getting into different sounds. Uh, I think he left us with, what, 40 or so guitars um, of and, and, you know, he wasn't like keeping all the ones from the seventies or anything. So those were all long gone. I mean, the ones we have, I probably the oldest ones date to like the eighties. Um, he wasn't really one to get sentimental about keeping them. He was just like kind of onto the next thing that piqued his interest. Um, yeah, I mean, there, I remember this, there were a couple models that, uh, I forget who made them, but, they, I'd never seen this in anyone else's guitar before. They they had the little uh, movable capo that's like built into the neck. Oh, wild! Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it was just like a simple little thing, but it was like, oh, you know, I don't actually see anyone using those. Yeah, that's fascinating. That he, 
you hear about guys like Neil Young or whatever who hang on to the same guitar for for 50 years. I mean, it sort of maybe speaks to lose modus operandi in terms of like I'm not necessarily going to go back to the same tools to make the the music that I make. I'm I'm constantly going to be updating and upgrading, you know, the Yeah, and that goes hand in hand with his general I mean, you know, Lou wasn't ever remaking transformer or whatever you know like every record is different than the one that came before um that's kind of the my favorite thing about his uh uh, his output his career um he was always kind of forward facing uh there there wasn't really much looking back um it, it was just you know he was always progressing so much like his songwriting uh his sort of choice of gear reflects that same philosophy i think yeah yeah, we'll come back. To, I have some specific questions about this kind of period, but to your point, when I think about the the work he was making just towards the end of his life, right when you would have been working with him, I think about obviously Lulu with Metallica, but also Hudson River Wind Wind Meditations. Meditations. So yeah. these two records that when you think of those as sort of the final the final released works of Lou Reed, neither of them sound like anything he had ever made before, you know, and that is just so rare in terms of an artist who is as progressive in terms of their their output as he was. Yeah, and you know, obviously not afraid to um piss off a fan base or you know, he was doing his own thing, pursuing his own artistic inclinations um, without kind of worrying about what people expect to hear from him. I mean, I you know, that's the thing. It's, he'd been at it for so long. It's not like a surprise at this point to point this out. Um, any Lou Reed fan who'd been around for a while know, would understand the next album isn't going to be like New York or whatever. Like it's he'd already done that. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's an exhibit at the at the um, there's a, a part of the exhibit at the New York Public Library where it's it's it it's a performance of metal machine music. Is that right? Or a, or a restaging of, of the metal. Machine yeah, trio? it's it's an ambisonic recording of. Uh, yeah. So Lou had done this um, string of shows in, I think, uh, 2009, maybe 08, 09 um, called the Metal Machine Trio, where it was uh him and um a uh saxophonist named Ulrich Krieger uh who had actually uh I think he was part of the he had done a metal machine adaptation for orchestra uh with the Zeitkratzer orchestra um and then uh, uh Sarth Calhoun who works with like electronics and uh, the synthesizer called the continuum and uh so one of the shows uh was recorded uh at the from the it was called the Blender Theater here in New York and uh it was an ambisonic recording which is a sort of spatial audio format um so they set up an ambisonic microphone uh kind of behind Lou's position on stage at about the height of his head and it was meant to capture his perspective in this improvised performance and um even though it's called Metal Machine Trio, they weren't covering Metal Machine music. It was sort of building on the the idea, the concept behind Metal Machine music, which was guitars and amps feedbacking on themselves. So Lou would uh, Lou had these what he called his drones, which what he would call uh, just a pair of 
guitar and amp, one leaning on the other, feeding back. So uh, that was kind of the base for the music they would improvise over. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, this Ambisonic recording was a particular concert and the playback array to uh, playback the spatialized audio is like three rings of speakers and you sit in the middle of them and they recreate uh, depth and width of, uh, you know, you're when you close your eyes, you feel like you're standing on stage and you can hear the other musicians around Lou and you can hear his vocals coming out of the PA towards the audience in front of him. And you can, I think you can even maybe hear his monitors. Like it really just captures what it sounds like to be Lou on stage performing that concert. I think that for every music interviewer who has <laughs> ever wanted to get inside Lou Reed's head, I mean, it sounds like you're describing uh, a, a truly impressive situation. Don, you've you've been involved in lots of archival work and and um, you know figuring out ways to present things to the public. What was it about the New York Public Library that made it feel like the right home for this exhibit, in your opinion? Well, they're the the people that we that acquired the collection. So that was the first step really and that happened several years ago now that like we um we met with them and we really thought Lou should be in New York at an institution here. And one of the things that um we did with Alan Lomax's collection when it went to the uh Library of Congress is that there's no restrictions on looking at it. There's anyone can come in and use it and you you know do research and and we want and Lori was intent on having that same sort of thing here and some people put restrictions on their collections and you have to ask permissions and it goes through a whole process and we just wanted it to be like here it is you know and it's it's so it's been available this collection that is the exhibit that is part of it has been upstairs on the third floor for a couple of years now available for people to come look at every piece of paper in there and every photo and all the audio that we transferred is in uh, the com the computers there. The online finding aid that you can look at from any computer doesn't allow you to listen to the music because there are third party label rights involved. But for research in the building, all 600 hours are already up and you can just go there and listen to everything. Yeah. And so it's been great because people have been coming there to do research on books for, of Lou books and other books about the time. It's like it's become already like an important place for people to come do research. And so this was really us showing with the exhibition that like, well, this is just the tip of the iceberg of what's actually just upstairs here in the same building. Like everything yeah. that we have that's going to go back upstairs in a couple of months when the when the exhibition closes um you can still go look at it and nothing everything in that exhibition is still available all you have to do is kind of walk in the door and take the elevator to the third floor yeah yeah i imagine you've seen some interesting people hanging out up there researching we certainly have in, <laughs> including lou's first wife betty who was up there doing some research no kidding so, yeah, so that's it's been really fun actually to see like the people who are showing up to like have a look at the collection. <clears throat> Lou is somebody obviously who's who's had no no shortage of things written about him, you know, or things that kind of explore his life, but 
despite that fact, it does feel like there's something kind of um there there remains a mystery to him. You know, he, he you can't you can't extinguish the sort of mysterious side of Lou. It's ineffable. It's not something you could learn away, you know. But the idea that people can go and access this stuff and that it's going to increase the depth of their their work and future work about Lou is is really exciting. And for somebody who had the literary aspirations that he did, clearly almost from the very beginning, that I I mean, I have to imagine that he would be gratified. I don't know what he would say. I don't know if anybody would be good at saying what Lou Reed would say about something, but, you know, um, it has to be... It's, 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 it, I imagine that it would be really cool and moving. So that's an incredible bit of work that you guys have done. Well, the, the exhibition does really focus a lot on his literary side. It starts as soon as you walk in with a video of him reciting the words to Romeo Had Juliet, and we use a lot of his own words to explain what's happening. Like for that installation, we have a quote from him to the side of it where he talks about how it took him months to get that just right, to get every word to fit just right. Like it, So he's talking about the, the craft of poetry, really. Like, and, and so we, should, we, have a, we have a room in the exhibition that's more or less dedicated to the year in between the Velvet Underground and his first solo album when he became a poet <laughs> and did a reading at St. Mark's that we found in the collection that no one had ever heard. And all these examples of the poetry he was having um, published during that time period. And, you know, and his, his mentor um, from college, uh, Delmore. Del, Delmore Schwartz. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, he, there's books, there's a book from uh, Delmore, then inscription to Lou. Um, and we have a bunch of Delmore's books that Lou owned. So we really did want to show that, that like, this is what he's about at the heart of it is like the words, how do you, and to, you know, he says over and over, like, as far as his music goes, he's like, yeah, three chords is usually enough. Sometimes two. <laughs> you know, but that said, I think he's just a phenomenal guitar player. And, and we see the we really have seen a lot of the um, the early steps of that by by accessing this collection. There's a tape of him in high school with his doo-wop band practicing. And there's tapes of him before he got into college doing Dylan type finger picking and doing Dylan songs and, and on, you know, on tape. And you can hear the way he's finger picking. That's what he was. He seemed to be like concentrating. And he talks about this, like in his doo-wop band, he was the guitar player. The other guy was the singer. And I think Lou really wanted to develop his chops as a guitar player. And that kind of finger picking he was doing in these early tapes. That's what I hear him now doing all the time. And like all the videos we see of him in the you know, 1990s and the 2000s, it's like he, he did continue that sort of it was very folk influence the the you know john fahey almost like just you know there one of the examples is he does a version of michael row the boat ashore and it came out on the words and music release that we put out but that's one of the, from one of the tapes and it, just to hear how he's playing it on guitar is just mind-blowing to me I, I didn't expect that you know but it yeah. made a lot of sense and then i hear that in the velvet underground and now i hear it a lot in his solo work too yeah, yeah, that's fascinating, that idea of a kind of continuum like that. 
his uh his record collection there's a great playlist uh i think you called it listen like lou or whatever that's available where you can hear some selections from were those records that he had there at the sister ray offices yeah exactly everything uh everything that we have up on display in the show uh is coming out of um yeah his collection that was at the sister ray offices which uh is a different set of things than what existed still exists at his apartment his and laurie's apartment which is i guess his personal collection um but uh yeah i mean uh the it was we we recreated this giant bookshelf of uh yeah, full of record. It's like one of those, you know, the one you have behind you right now, yeah. one of those cube shelves. And uh, it's just full of uh, all the records that were at the Sister Ray office. And um, yeah, I, the playlist you're referring to, I can't, Don, did we put that together or was that the Is one that at the, NYPL? Sure, that could be the doo-wop playing list. I don't know if that mm-hmm. one's available. No, this this one's got Culture Club and Megadeth on it. So it's not the, uh, not the <laughs> doo-wop one. The library put that together. Yeah, I don't think we put that together. There okay. Is, um, part of the uh, exhibition is his original box of doo-wop singles, and and they did transfer all those singles and may and there's a little um, you know audio station there where you can listen to them. That's part of the exhibition. But yeah, it was pretty fun to see like what records are there in that collection, and it really is the Sister Ray office record collection. It's a lot of stuff people would send to him. I mean, you can tell some things are played and some things aren't. <laughs> yeah, there were some there's some unopened records, yeah. right, from Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole collection is really the papers of Sister Ray, his business. But what's incredible is even though he didn't keep he had no nostalgia for like his old guitars from that period, he kept all the paperwork. He kept all the tour receipts. There's just boxes and boxes <laughs> of like every, you know, tour after tour little envelopes that the tour manager had put together all the receipts and so yeah. it's, it's an amazing document to have that so he he kept that he moved it from storage place to storage place he didn't throw it out so i feel like you know it was interesting what he kept and what he didn't <laughs> sometimes it's fascinating right because he absolutely as we talked about there was that like devil may care sort of like approach that fueled so much of his art but you never hear Lou being quite as sentimental as he is when he's talking about doo-wop records that he that he listened to as a kid, you know, or hearing them on the radio, or even the cover of This Magic Moment that's on the Lost Highway soundtrack. It's it's, I mean, it's it's Lou doing it, so you'll never mistake it for an an old doo-wop single. But there's like a there's a nostalgia and a tenderness there, so. It's it's interesting to see where that finds its way into his his character um, and where it doesn't. And the idea that he that he saved all these receipts and all this correspondence. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have to speculate, what what was it that was motivating that that kind of thing? Was he just a very proper uh, businessman? <laughs> well, I think um, his sister Meryl had a really interesting take on why he kept all these receipts. And uh, part of it was, you know, their dad was an accountant and <laughs> it's what you do. Yeah. And uh, another part of it is, and this is kind of a boring answer, uh, you know, it's it's just about 
keep it, you know, Lou was getting sued a lot <laughs> over time <laughs> and often, you know, so uh, part of it's just keep receipts because you don't know when you're going to need to reference whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely that that makes sense. You probably don't make that mistake a whole bunch of times, you know, when you're in court with any sort of regularity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, he had, he had falling outs with some of the managers, and that we've seen evidence of in court cases, and those court cases involve some of the paperwork. <laughs> so yeah, so it, it's good that he had it. It was that's why it even got kept is it was being shown to like, here's how much we made on this tour. So that some cases, that's why they did keep it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Another uh, another really interesting looking piece of the exhibit is is. And you might have to explain to me exactly what I'm looking at in the photo I've seen. But is it a, a, a recreation of Hal Wilner's studio? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is. uh this is a hell of a installation. Um, if you're familiar with Hal Wilner, uh, he's, you know, he had a hell of a personality. Uh, the guy was a walking encyclopedia. I, I can't even cover all the sort of the depths of his expertise uh, from, you know, obscure 50s comedy to uh, the guy knew more about music than anyone I've ever met in my life. Uh, he just had this like real hunger to you know, absorb everything, all forms of creativity and humor. Uh, so, you know, um, he had this amazing studio uh, here in Midtown uh, in New York, and this is where he would work. Uh, he Hal was a music supervisor. Uh, he worked at Saturday Night Live since the 70s. Um, you know, he, uh, he had a hell of a music library, and his studio was just this very it was the closest representation to who he was as a person. It was like peering inside of his mind um, because he had all these, I don't know, dummies and uh, weird props and movie memorabilia and obscure records and, um, you know, uh, just weird knickknacks. I mean, the last time I had um, went into the studio to see him, I remember you know, I sat down in this chair and there was like an ashtray on a little table. And he's like, oh, that's uh, that's Frank Zappa's ashtray. He had just bought it from like an estate sale. So, <laughs> you know, he the guy was like as eclectic as they come. And anyway, um, his wife, Sheila, uh, faithfully recreated his studio. So Hal was Lou's best friend. Uh, and, you know, I, like really like they were joined at the hip uh whenever possible like they were the textbook definition of best buds so um it just felt right to us to uh want to represent and include hal in some way in the show because you know he and lou were inseparable so sheila his wife uh was kind enough to put a lot of time into recreating his studio uh for, she had documented it uh with all these photos before uh, breaking it down after he had died. So um, she was just referencing these photos and rebuilding a studio uh, by hand, um, you know, in this space we carved out at the library next to the Lou exhibit. So uh, it's really worth a look because there was nobody else like Hal and there, there probably never will be, but you can at least see what his essence was like through the uh, the room he spent so much time in. 
Mm. About two months before he passed away, um, he, he was one of the first COVID waves that hit. Uh, we did an interview with him. We did a two-day oral history on all the projects he did with Lou. <clears throat> so that's in the room. We have an edit. We edited it. Well, not much, but edited it a little. And um, it's playing in, you know, the whole interview with him. And that's something that we'll put up online as well. Oh, um, I can't. I can't wait to hear that. Yeah. I I I think that well one they they did a radio show together um for Yeah, the New York Shuffle. New York Shuffle, which I I like have heard some of that and and it's it speaks to both Hal's eclecticism in terms of his taste, but of course Lou's as well. And I have to imagine that for somebody like Lou, it must have been exciting to have somebody plugged in who's sharing all this cool stuff with them. Um, not that he wasn't his own, a voracious listener on his own, you know, but but when Hal passed away, I was familiar with his work, of course. I had, you know, some of the some of the great concept tribute albums that he had done and, and other stuff, and so I knew that about him, and I knew that he had worked a lot with Lou, but I saw photos uh, of the office that were in the New York Times, and when I was reading, it wasn't an mm. maybe it was an obit, or maybe it was an older piece. I can't remember now, but photos of him in that room, and and I remember having like a very distinct sense of like that place is a representation of a person, very very much so. You know, you get like a not. I mean, just anytime you see a big somebody hanging out in a stack of media. You know, it, it lets you know something about them, but there absolutely seemed to be a weird, curious situation going on there. And so I thought it was so cool that you guys were able to include that little nod to Hal as well, because he helped encourage Lou to do some weird stuff. And uh, and they he was a part of the Lulu process, too, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, once they uh, worked together for the first time, which was... Um... I think it was Hal's Kurt uh, Vial uh, tribute record. Sure. Um, and uh, Hal had produced Lou, you know, covering one song. Uh, I, I think pretty soon after that, Lou was going back to Hal to produce. Well, so he produced the Ecstasy record, The Raven. Um, he worked on Hudson River Wind Meditations, Lulu. So yeah, they were, uh, you know, they were working together. Uh, Lou would do all of Hal's sort of tribute concerts, which was, you know, one of Hal's great sort of pro ongoing projects to just get these people together to cover, you know, sea shanties or, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, he was all no, exactly. Yeah, I know the sh the sea shanty one you're talking about, actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Um, yeah, they, they were, you know, I think they hit it off pretty quickly and uh, they were just, yeah, best of friends until the ends of their lives. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, 
Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Um, I think you mentioned Ecstasy. It's my suspicion that Ecstasy will be the next Lou record that gets like a really big like revival and reappraisal. Um, I think that the time is... I think that time is coming soon. It's a really incredible record, and it's really over overwhelming uh, in terms of his sort of sonic uh, approach on that one. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's past due, if anything. Um, that record was, uh, you know, it's it, it's almost cliche to say a Lou record was underappreciated on release because, in in most cases, that's just how it is. Like people take the world takes time to catch up with Lou. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, different for me cause I get to look at it in retrospect. Uh, and it's just obvious, like, you know, people didn't get Berlin and now it's, a, you know, it became a classic not too long after, um, all the Velvet Underground stuff was not as culturally significant, uh, in terms of the public consciousness, on release it was all after the fact so you know um it's easy to say look back and say this is how it is but lou had to live that of putting out records critics you know just dumping on them and uh and then years passing and suddenly the the winds of uh you know, public opinion shift and these things are looked at as classics. So that had to be hard. Like I, you know, Lou, uh, wasn't, wasn't without emotions. Um, it has to be difficult to have your, something that you work on very, um, you know, very honestly and with great effort to just get, you know, thrown to the wolves, (laughs) uh, time after time. So, um, yeah, I, I do hope Ecstasy gets its due because, like you said, it's uh, it's a really special record. It's Hal used to call it sort of the last of Lou's so-called proper records, uh, in that it's not tied to a certain, you know, Hudson River when Meditations is sort of for a particular purpose. Uh, Lulu was a collaboration, and it was based off of a Robert Wilson collaboration, the, right. you know, the play. So uh, Hal the ra- would refer the to Raven. Ecstasy. Raven yeah, was, was concept. also concept. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Ecstasy was really kind of the last of Lou's sort of traditional approaches to a Lou Reed solo, solo record. And no, I know Hal was super proud of the work on that. And um, yeah, I, it's just another one of those where the reception at the time falls flat. And those who know have known for a while. It's a great record. It's just, like you said, I think the time is right for the real renaissance of looking at it as one of Lou's great records. I, yeah, I very much, I very much think so. And obviously, so you were working with him when when Lulu came out, a record that is uh, the exception to what you were saying because it only got good reviews. Nobody misunderstood it, and it's uh, <laughs> and it's always been held in high esteem. Um, 
<laughs> well, that, that one was. I think. It's like meat, it's like the meatloaf bat out of hell record. Every Christmas they sell like a million of them. I <laughs> yeah, I mean the the I remember yeah, I I had started working for Lou. Um it was a couple of it was about a month and a half before the release of Lulu. So uh I distinctly remember the sort of um bewilderment when it was just getting panned like it was just getting destroyed before anyone had heard anything. There wasn't any audio circulating. It was it was the sort of the metal community reacting to the news that Metallica were collaborating with Lou Reed. And it was, you know, that's fine. People are going to, the the internet is the internet and the general public is going to do what they do. And people get up in arms about things before they even experience them. So I, I but I do recall the sort of sense of bewilderment of like, this is insane. People are like losing their shit over this record that nobody's heard yet (laughs) yeah yeah what's funny though is it comes out and it is equally it's equally bewildering upon listening to it at first i i i have my own like story with lulu which is a fairly common one i think which is that when it came out i did also kind of dismiss it i definitely remember thinking that it was way more interesting and weird than it was given credit for. Like, I remember being, like, hearing it, not necessarily, let's say, enjoying it. And it's still a record that enjoyment isn't always what I'm looking for when I'm yeah, it's super challenging. engaging with that record. It's a challenging record, so I can never be all that hard on people who it, who couldn't wrap their heads around it, because I, I certainly couldn't. As time has gone on, though, and a couple of years ago, uh, when we there was the tenth anniversary, I wrote a piece for Stereo Gum where I, I, I made my case for why it is a a a, a great record. Or at the very, I used the word great, almost in sort of like the biblical sense, like a terrific, terrible record, uh. and then and that it's just a big monument, you know, to lose belief in what he's doing, which is. It's crazy, but I have also thought that I've also thought that Metallica doesn't get enough credit for rising to the challenge and embracing what must have been an uncomfortable stretch for them. You know what I mean? Uh, and I, oh I yeah, just... no doubt. I mean, they they're guys who uh, when do they ever take a back seat to anyone? You know, like <laughs> yeah, and to kind of show up for Lou in that way and let him take the wheel and be his backing band in that way. I mean, credit to them for, you know, I I don't know if you've seen some kind of monster, which is a great film, but it's hard to imagine the Metallica you see there being like, Hey Lou, what do you want to do? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that that's one of my favorite rock movies. uh, Some kind of monster by the Metallica documentary. I don't think there's ever been and it's another thing that I think they should get more credit for, which is being purely unvarnished and just like showing warts and all. This is what being in Metallica looks like. When I watch that movie and then I think about Lulu, I think about their desire to do something artistically challenging and valid and 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 push themselves. They're trying to do that on Saint Anger. It's a record that doesn't have Lou Reed on it, so you've you're already at a disadvantage in terms of how it turns out at that point. But 
but I think Lulu is like another just it's it I, I don't know I just I kind of give them there's this live version of uh, Junior Dad from the BBC that I go back to over and over again and uh God I'm almost gonna get emotional talking about it but Lou is clearly not fully he's not at full capacity health wise right he's correct yeah and and you can sense that in the performance um but what you also sense is just this i mean there's parts where like all the metallica dudes sort of have their eyes closed and they're doing this thing and it's like it's that's a special thing that happened and lou is an interesting guy when it comes i think about like he could have made like his version, like the the 2011 version of Rock and Roll Animal with those guys, right? Where it's just like really fuzzed out, heavy versions of like Lou jams. I'm sure that's what they sure. thought. I'm sure that's what they thought they were signing up for. <laughs> well, that but... was kind of the initial <laughs> the thing that brought them together, right? They were going to be performing some songs together for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They did, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and I remember reading in Anthony DeCurtis's book uh, Lou, uh, which is a book that's very very valuable for me as a Lou fan for sure, because he he gets into some incredible spots. But yeah, he talks about they do they do those performances, and Lou didn't really like them. They were a little too. I think he used the term militaristic or something, or maybe how <laughs> may, may, maybe how Wilner said that, but. Okay, but whoever said it, you know, it's clear that when they go in to make Lulu, they are they're doing something else, and I think it's a I think it's a fascinating record and one that um, that David Bowie apparently really liked it, and he and he said that similarly mm-hmm. to what we were saying about ecstasy, people will get it eventually. Um, I don't know, maybe he's right. He's David Bowie. He's probably more right than I am about most things. Um, but I think similar to Lou, he was making challenging work right up until the very end. And I think he recognized in Lou a kindred spirit. So I think Lulu is like, if it's as, it, you know, you pair that and then you pair that with the Wind Meditations record and you've got a very interesting conclusion to Lou Reed's recording discography, you know? Yeah, you you drew an interesting connection there. Uh that um yeah david bowie did appreciate the lulu record quite a bit uh he he told lori as much um i was there when he spoke to lori i wasn't part of their conversation but lori had told me what they spoke about right afterward and um yeah he he went right up to her and he told her how great how powerful that record was and uh i've thought about what I'd witnessed that night after the fact, because uh, at that point, no one knew that Bowie was ill. Um, I'm not sure that he, at that point, I don't know what the timeline was like, but yeah. So this is like, you know, 2014 or late 2013. And, um, you know, I've looked back in retrospect at that uh, interaction. And um, I, I think that for sure, David, recognize that Lulu was Lou's sort of end of life record, his lashing out his, you know, there was lots of, uh, lots of, a lot of strong emotion in that record, obviously. So he, he sees how Lou is kind of um, embracing end of life. And then uh, shortly afterward, uh, he's working on Black Star, and that's 
that that was an incredible sort of end of life record how to how to embrace the end of one's life and he goes in such a different direction than Lou but i i think that you know knowing what i know knowing that he had sort of absorbed lulu in the way that he did i i think that it and obviously like he respected lou greatly and they were they were good friends and had a, like enormous amounts of respect for one another. I think the connections between those two records, uh, it's pretty strong to me because I know what David thought about Lulu and I know what he did on Black Star is, while not directly related, is uh, you can see the sort of the thread there uh, to decidedly go in a different direction. Lou is full of a lot of rage on Lulu and Black Star is not that kind of record at all. No, yeah, it's 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 different, but that I do think there's a connection. There's a there's a connection between those two records. You can almost throw in Soused by uh Scott Walker, which yes. he did with Sun as well. A similarly sort of like as far as end of life records go, you get those three dudes in a room and it's like uh just the courage and creativity at the very end still just like kind of like it boggles my mind. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So. Uh, the things I would have given to have met Scott Walker before oh. his passing. <laughs> of course. D- Don, I- I'm curious. Jason obviously had a lot of experience with Lou uh, in a personal sense. What, what, what did, how did, how many times had you interacted with him or, or did you meet, did you meet Lou? I first met him a couple of times when I was playing in a band with Mo Tucker mm. and he came in to do um, play on those records and so I, you know, met him and he was friendly enough because we were Mo's band. But what really struck me was how much he loved Mo and what he wanted to help her and help her make a better record. And getting back to the, you know, uh, tech thing, <clears throat> we were in a studio that it was pretty terrible and the speakers <laughs> were not good at all. <clears throat> and he said, Mo, you can't mix on these speakers. It's going to be horrible. And he came back the next day with this really expensive pair of headphones in a walnut box. They were like some super expensive pair of headphones. And he was like, you have to mix on these. But only she and the engineer were allowed to wear them. The rest of us, not we couldn't put them on. <laughs> but, you know, he was friendly with me. I mean, I got him to sign my... Uh, Metal Machine 8-track and my Berlin 8-track tapes. And he was kind of into that. Yeah, um, And then I would see him once in a while in different things. I, I did, I played in a couple of the Hal Wilner shows and the one we did on um, Shel Silverstein. Um, Lou was doing it. And that day during the, when the sound check was happening, uh, there was a dressing room for the men, a dressing room for the women, and a dressing room for Lou and Lori, because they got yeah. their own dressing room. And so when the pizza showed up in the guy's dressing room, I was there with one other person, and Lou came in, <clears throat> and he wanted a piece of pizza. And, you know, he was like cordial, but not talkative at all. But he went over and he started, he got himself a piece of pizza. And um, one of the other people who was on the show, because it's a Hal Wilner show, was um, Mel- Melvin Van Peebles, who did Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, the director, but he was singing one of the songs. So he comes walking in, and, and they had just opened the food carts, and Melvin had this piece of corn 
uh, on a stick with like, you know, Mexican, like with all the cheese and it's just a big mess. And he's eating that and it's all in his beard. And he's like halfway eating through it and they see each other, but they don't say anything. <clears throat> Melvin goes over to one corner. He's with this woman who's like working with him. And then Lou walks over with a, he's torn the top of the box off and he put a slice of pizza on it. And he just comes over to Melvin and he just offers it to him, but doesn't say a word. You just like, here, you have a piece of pizza, but no words. <clears throat> and Melvin looks at him, takes the pizza, hands Lou the half-eaten corn. Lou starts eating the corn. Melvin eats the pizza. Lou <laughs> turns around and walks out. They never said a word, but it was just like mutual respect, you know? <laughs> It oh was, my god yeah just, just to be a fly on the wall for that i was just like oh my god that's amazing but that's the lou i kind of saw was like this kind of you know not a talkative guy but the guy with a lot of heart and a, a guy a nice guy who wanted to like you know showed respect and was nice to other people so i know no. there's there's the bad Lou that everyone that we love too, but it was a really sweet Lou that like just did neat things like that. Yeah, on our on our friends podcast, the Jokerman podcast, I know you guys made reference to an early potential title for the exhibit was my my week beats your year. If we're talking about <laughs> if we're talking about bad Lou, that's obviously one of the all time greatest things anybody has ever said in the in the English language, you know. Um, but obviously, yeah, people would think of him as this combative figure when it comes to journalists. And he certainly participated in that and to maybe to some extent was playing a role or was being goaded into it regardless. But I hear so many stories like the one you just said, never one that vivid and amazing. Um, but about him being like a pretty, a very, very kind and gentle dude in most instances as well. Part of the exhibition is we have a whole area on press because they kept press from every album, every tour. There's binders and binders of press like you would have. But there's also a lot of interviews on video. So when the video got transferred, we started going through it, looking for clips to use and expecting every other one to be a confrontation. And there's almost no confrontations. Right. Like when Lou like gets into his subject and wants to talk with someone it's just a normal interview. It's, it's a rare treat when he goes off on someone. And yeah. so we were surprised and, you know, I think anyone would be, you would think that that's what most of them are like, but they really weren't. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Another area of interest for Lou that I, I'm always drawn to something that humanizes him so much. And, um, and that makes me feel like I get a little bit of a better sense of who he was as a person was his interest in Tai Chi. Um, I know there's a new book on the way, uh, The Art of the Straight Line. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. Did you guys find anything in the archives that spoke to his, that interest of his or did you, you know, did, would he practice at the office? I mean, it's. Yeah, no, I saw him do Tai Chi just about every day. I mean, so I was working with Lou Monday to Friday every week and uh, he was 
he was uh, doing Tai Chi with his teacher, Master Ren. I think it was like Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And then he would do it on his own on the other days. So it was just a part of his daily routine. Um, but uh, to your question about uh, did we find anything in the archive? Uh, yeah, um, we we found um, actually a colleague of ours, one of the editors on the Tai Chi book, he went to the library, he went up to the third floor, he sat at one of the computers, pulled up the finding aid, and went through a bunch of audio tapes, and he found something that Don and I kind of missed the first time. Uh, it was a song from, I can't remember if this was the 83 New Sensations sessions or the 86 mistrial sessions but uh there was a song that got scrapped that lou had made about tai chi called open invitation where he's just kind of uh, more or less inviting people to practice tai chi um and uh yeah it's it's been sitting there in the archive for all these years and um we're working on doing something with it soon that's incredible. That's incredible. Obviously, the you you guys have been involved in some projects where the stuff is sourced from this the archive. Obviously, the uh, the book of poetry, which included that Saint Mark's reading that you alluded to earlier, um, mm. and, and then of course the Great Light in the Attic set. Um, these embryonic versions of early Velvet songs. When it comes to all that music and and what there might be left to hear, I mean, obviously there is a a ton of material, but you also mentioned the third party sort of deal with it. How difficult is it navigating who owns this stuff or how this stuff could get released? Um, and is that something that, that requires a, a, a significant amount of time to figure out? Uh, it's not too mysterious because Lou's career, um, it, it's pretty straightforward. He was with uh, RCA and Arista in that first half right up through Mistrial in 86. So that whole solo career uh, from his self-titled album through Mistrial, it's all under the Sony umbrella. And we have a really good relationship with them. Uh, we, you know, one of the first things we worked on once we got the archive together was the uh, RCA uh, box set. Uh, that came out, what was that, 2015 or something? Um, so, uh, yeah, we have a great relationship with them. And uh, then the sort of latter half blues solo career is with Warner or Rhino. Um, and, uh, yeah, we we got to work with them on the New York Deluxe reissue a couple years ago, 2019, I think. And we contributed a whole... Yeah, a lot of... Yeah, there was a whole bonus disc. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're it is a process, but yeah, it's not it's pretty simple of like when, like Jason said, when the when it changes over from one label to the other. And then the Velvet Underground stuff is Verve for the most part, a little bit of a difference. Yeah. But. And then there's the odd uh, sort of gap between these things that are before any of these things. And uh, that's where um, some of the light in the attic stuff has uh, has been in the works uh that you know we've already put out and that we're continuing to put out that's where some of that stuff comes from so there's there's uh, the light in the attic thing is is part of a series there's going to be a lot more stuff as as time allows oh yeah we're yeah we've got uh a road map that's probably going to take us a good number of years well that's obviously incredible to hear because it was such a revelation to hear those songs in that early form the way they were. 
And I mean, as somebody who likes, you know, the pick, some of the Pickwick stuff too, a bunch, you know, I love the ostrich and stuff like that. So I'm always wondering just like, there's so much left to hear. And it's, it's really, it's really a thrill to know that, that there's going to be things that, that help to change the way we think about Lou. I mean, hearing the words in music set to me underscored those literary aspirations that I had already mentioned because you hear the way the songs were continually written over years and shaped into what we now recognize as their sort of completed form. But yeah, hearing some of that early stuff, it was it was really a revelation. Also, he yeah, and John seemed to... Pale Blue Eyes was amazing, yeah. Just the fact that Pale Blue Eyes had completely different words other than the chorus and then to see like here he is doing it with John Cale but by the time he records it John's not even in the band anymore. Right. No, absolutely. And and it's also I mean I like uh songs for Drella just fine but it's very interesting to hear the two of them laughing and being so kind of like brotherly with each other. There's a real sense of like uh I don't mischief, maybe mischief almost feels when it, when he when yeah. he when he's talking about heroin or whatever, you know, like he kind of he even like chuckles like introducing it, you know, like because he yeah, knows totally. he's he's doing something so subversive and so out of pocket for the time period, you know. So it's really exciting to hear that stuff. Yeah, it it really made my day to be able to hear Lou laughing that much on the record. Um I, you know, the the side of Lou, I got to get to know a little bit. Uh, we did spend a lot of time just joking around, and that's not part of so-called bad Lou or the public persona that much. I mean, obviously, the like people who are really familiar with it, like there's a lot of humor in Lou's music, don't get me wrong. Like if you know who you're listening to, you there's, yeah, there's no shortage of humor all through his discography. Um, but for the sort of average uh listener or person encountering Lou, the public persona, it's not so obvious that the guy loves to laugh and joke around a lot. So, you know, there was a little part of me that's like, is this too revealing sometimes to have, have Lou just be, you know, the guy who likes to crack up and, you know, crack John up and all of that. But uh, it's, it's nice to just be able to be like, no, that's, that's who Lou was. That's really what their dynamic was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. Don, I have kind of a, kind of a, hopefully not too high concept of a question, but maybe a little bit. Um, You've obviously been involved in uh, alternative music for a a long time and have worked with uh, just an incredible roster of bands. I wonder if you could speak to the influence that Lou and the Velvets had on early what we now call alternative culture and and what it was sort of like to be more on the ground floor for for that um yeah that's a good good point i mean i do think lou like iggy you know was just like this beacon of light for most people who wanted to have a weirdo band that wasn't going to be a major label band you know, even though they were major label bands, by the time that generation was starting to make music, those those opportunities weren't there with majors. And it, it, create, it created an indie movement because you needed indie labels to put this kind of stuff out. But Lou was definitely one of the, you know, <laughs> um, guiding lights, I think, for everyone who wanted to make that kind of music. And 
Uh, I mean, I, I bought Metal Machine and Berlin when I was in high school. So I would sit in my bedroom with headphones on and listen to those records. And I really liked Metal Machine back then. I, I, I understood its drone out quality or something about it just made me relax because I think my head was spinning. So, you know, and it still does. I mean, I still enjoy, I, I'm a big fan of Metal Machine, but same thing with Berlin. Like those two, I got right when they came out. And yeah. And so those two had the biggest impact on me, but also even uh, the Bells, Techno Prisoners all had, you know, those all, you know, definitely had a big impact. And then when I started my first, my own first indie band in DC in 81, we were called the Velvet Monkeys. Right. Mixed my two favorite bands, the Velvet Underground and the Monkeys. (laughs) So yeah, for me, it's like, it's an obvious, uh, the trail back to Lou is pretty obvious, you know, and I think for, for most indie bands and, you know, and, and Roxy music was also a big influence, I think. And those were the bands that we heard and could get to. I mean, I would even throw well, Bowie, of course, it all started with T-Rex, like T-Rex came along and then suddenly T-Rex wasn't popular at all anymore. And Bowie had like taken his place. I, I kind of remember that moment happening in the glam thing because i was in like eighth grade ninth grade yeah and then it just blew up from there you know and then but but the stooges had already been around the stooges started it all yeah no i i i i I think about that whole sort of vanguard of artists that really did have (laughs) sorry yeah i guess (laughs) lou was there before the stooges but or you know yeah What's so interesting is, yeah, you is that Lou is such a vast figure that you can definitely see him as the the alternative godfather, the punk godfather, the indie rock godfather. But then he's so many other things too. You know, you listen to Street Hassle and the song, and you're like, and he's a and he's kind of a modern composer too. You know, and he's also an ambient guy, and he's so it's like, yeah, there's thing. I think that that's the thing that puts him, you know, makes him so different is that. He's in that league with Dylan and Leonard Cohen and Patti Smith and Jim Carroll, you know, like who they were poets. They were wordsmiths. I mean, the songs grew around that, not the other way around. And I think that's the thing that's to get back to Lulu for a second. What's so divisive about it, maybe, are the words like if those same sounds had gone along with songs about cars and girls, everyone would have loved it. But they're not. They're really dark, deep, foreboding. <laughs> like you know, they're they're challenging. They're very challenging, and that's that's who he was. I mean, he's the person who would just put that out there. And so, yeah, I feel like that's that's what puts him in the league ahead of most people. Is just like he was a writer. He was a writer and poet that that ended up with a guitar hanging around his neck. That's right. That's right. Maybe even to Delmore's consternation, it, it turned out that way. <laughs> he, he brought that up for years to come in interviews and things that he hoped he wasn't letting Delmore down. Like, you know, he, he didn't want to sell. He didn't want to be a sellout in Delmore's eyes. Yeah. What's and what's the song on Blue Goat? Uh, wait, oh, no. Uh, Blue Mask. Uh, there's a song about Delmore on that, too. Right. Where that sort of that. Yeah. That thing you're talking about, about sort of feeling yeah wondering if he had betrayed his 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 aim you know uh in favor of rock and roll music yeah 
Delmore and Warhol were definitely like his mentors and and people that he looked up to throughout his whole life, you know. Yeah. I think Andy somewhat for his work ethic. <laughs> sure. <clears throat> you know, they he and John learned a lot in that respect, I think from Andy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, it's been so much fun getting the chance to talk with you about all of this uh, this incredible work that you've done and uh and and Lou, this figure who, you know, a decade after his passing and many decades after first releasing music, still feels as radical and vital as an artist can, to me at least. And uh, there's very few people who that can be said about. And I want to thank both of you for your your work bringing attention to to what Lou did and what he created and the vast scope of it. So thank you guys. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for asking all the right questions. Yeah. It was really nice talking to you about all this. Yeah. This is like, this is a great interview. All right. That's going to bring our show to a close this week. I am Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host and produce transmissions the show is edited by andrew horton our music this season comes from frank maston drawn from his incredible discography of gorgeous library music you can hear more by visiting maston.bandcamp.com that's m-a-s-t-o-n dot bandcamp.com thank you so much frank uh, having the tunes in the podcast this season has really been exciting for me and i've loved sharing your music with our listeners. Our executive producer is Justin Gage. He founded Aquarium Drunkard way back in 2005. Can you believe that? Don't miss his radio program. It's an essential listen. The Aquarium Drunkard Show on Sirius XMU Channel 35. It airs every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Pacific time. You get the podcast here in the morning. You get the Aquarium Drunkard Show on Sirius XMU in the evening. It's a great combination. Aquarium Drunkard is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit the TalkHouse for more great podcasts, interviews, and other fascinating reads. If you like Aquarium Drunkard transmissions, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. If you want to leave us a, uh, a rating, go ahead and give us five stars if you dig the show. We uh, that helps game the algorithm, helps new folks find the show, and we would love it if we had new people hopping on and getting on board with the kind of conversations we are having here. If you want to take your support a step further, be sure to check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. We'll be back next Wednesday with another great conversation. I'm joined by Philip Selway of Radiohead. He joins me to discuss a bunch of Radiohead classics, his solo work, and a lot more. Had a really great time talking with Phil, and I think you're going to enjoy that conversation. Be well until then. We'll be back soon. You can find me at Jason P. Woodbury on most social media. And of course, you can find Aquarium Drunkard on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, give us a like and keep up to date on what we're doing. All right, we'll be back next week with Phil from Radiohead. Be well until then, this transmission is concluded.